Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and our guest today is Stephanie Fu, the author of What My Bones Know, a memoir of healing from complex trauma. Stephanie is a writer and radio producer, most recently on This American Life. We talked today about how Stephanie approached writing about her diagnosis of complex PTSD as she was working on healing from it, generational trauma, and communal healing. The Stacks Book Club pick for March is A Mercy by Toni Morrison, and we will be discussing the book on the podcast on March 30th with Imani Perry. If you like The Stacks and want more of it, please head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the Stacks Pack. You get exclusive perks like bonus episodes, virtual book club, discounts on merch, and shout outs on this show. Speaking of which, let's do it. Thank you to our newest members of the Stacks Pack, Julia Riley, Emma Byers, Kelsey, Riley Horner, Christina Ramming, Madison McGuire, Mindy Toussaint, Rebecca Moody, Cassidy Wessenberg, and Jessica Igarashi. Thank you all so much for joining the Stacks Pack and putting your money behind the work of this show. The Stacks is a completely independent podcast, so without the support of the Stacks Pack, there would be no The Stacks. If you want to join and support the work that I do on this podcast, head to patreon.com slash the stacks. Okay, now it's time for my conversation with Stephanie Fu. All right, everybody, I am here today with Stephanie Fu, the author of What My Bones Know, a memoir of healing from complex trauma. Stephanie, welcome to The Stacks. Thanks so much for having me on The Stacks. I really appreciate it. I'm very excited to talk about your book. I have to admit, I basically knew nothing about complex trauma, so I fear Mm -hmm. that I may be asking you some really basic rudimentary questions, but I also have a sense that I'm probably not alone. So will you sort of to kick us off, just give folks uh, like a 30 seconds or so, tell them about your book. Yeah. So my book is um, my journey of healing. So getting diagnosed with complex PTSD, which many people don't know about, um, that's not in the DSM yet. And sort of dealing with the um, shame and pathologizing aspects of that. And going on this whole journey of trying all different therapies, everything from EMDR to mushrooms to IFS to traveling back to my hometown and investigating the intergenerational and communal immigrant trauma that me and my community went through 
in order to finally come to a place where I feel like I have healed to some degree and and have come to appreciate in some aspects my complex PTSD. Yeah. I mean, this book is really incredible because you take us on such an intimate personal journey and also weave in all this very interesting sort of scientific stuff, for lack of a better word, <laughs> by me. Um, and I found that to be really compelling because we got to not only see, you know, it's not only a memoir about your experiences, but it's also sort of this bigger text that kind of brings what you're experiencing into into a more, I don't know, clinical Maybe that's the right word sense. And I, I really like that because I felt like I was learning about you and about complex PTSD. Yeah, I wanted it to be a book where if you were just diagnosed with complex PTSD and you don't know anything about it, that you can sort of get all of the basics that you need to know through this book, as well as being led through it with my own personal story so that you know that you're not alone. And was that who your audience was? Like when you wrote this book, did you sit down and say, I'm going to write to other people who have been diagnosed with CPTSD? Or was there an additional audience in mind for you? I think that was the central audience. Yeah. I think that when I first was diagnosed and I was reading books about CPTSD, they were all so dismal and boring <laughs> and dry and usually written by people who did not have complex PTSD. And I wanted there to be something accessible and interesting and real and hopeful so that basically if someone was just diagnosed, they could pick this up and they could not feel so deeply pathologized and broken. Yeah. Okay. I'm very impressed by you because I kept thinking as I was reading this book, if I had just been diagnosed with something and I had been dealing with something and then I was also concurrently writing a book about this thing, there's no way I would write the book. So I sort of want to know what prompted you to kind of write what you were experiencing and going through like in real time or close to real time. Yeah. So I think I pretty much decided that I wanted to write this book very shortly after I was diagnosed because of okay. the lack of literature that I was able to find. I was just like, how mm. is there not a first person story about this? This is ridiculous. Right. Their first person stories about depression or anxiety or, you know, bipolar disorder. And there was just nothing. It was like this total void, which made me feel so deeply isolated at the point where I was, you know, Googling celebrities trying to find is there a celebrity with complex PTSD so I just feel like less of a freak and so I was like okay if I heal from this I want to write this book but also I was aware like that's if <laughs> right. you know and so I was kind of like I want to focus on healing first and foremost and so mm -hmm. while I was healing while I was going through most of my meditation sessions and EMDR and classes and things like that I was not writing with an audience in mind at all. I don't I don't think I would have been able to heal really mm. if I had been doing that. I was mostly writing totally stream of consciousness at the time. Just diary entries for myself in terms of like what have I learned today? Did I get anything out of today? How hopeless do mm. I feel today? It wasn't until I came to a place where I was much happier and feeling more confident and safe in my diagnosis that I actually sat down and did the work. And at that point, it kind of felt like just being a journalist in terms of going through mm. the source material of my journals, right? And cobbling that all together to paint a picture of what my experience had been like. What was that like for you going back through your journals? I think 
at that point, I was feeling much happier and content and mm. and like in a good place. And I think a, a lot of healing from complex PTSD is sort of learning to love yourself and accept where you are and where you were at different stages of your journey. Right. So I think going through the journals, there was a lot of reading where I was at the time, even if they were really kind of embarrassing and I was just a hot mm -hmm. mess. I was like, <laughs> my heart went out to that girl. And I was like, oh, I have so much love for you. I have so much empathy for you. I see where you are and you are trying so hard. I had a lot of admiration for her of mm. how hard she was fighting. I think sometimes it was difficult, but there was a lot of, um, it was kind of sweet almost seeing how yeah. far I'd come. Yeah, I was I was also really rooting for you in the book. Um, I think that you did a really good job of capturing sort of where you were throughout the book. And I, I definitely could tell as a reader that like there like that you were experiencing the things that you were saying you were experiencing. Cause you know, sometimes you read a book and you're like, okay, you're telling me a lot, but like I'm not getting that from the stories you're sharing. But I was like really like ro rooting for you and like cheering you on. Um and I think that you really captured yourself on the journey so well, which is it's gotta be hard to do. Uh, I guess so. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you've only ever captured yourself. You've never tried to capture like a different person. But I don't know. I'm not a writer, so I'm always really impressed when people do writing well. Um, <laughs> I, so we grew up, uh, you and I, very close to one another. I'm from Oakland mm. um, and my husband's family's from Los Altos. So I also really appreciated the section of you driving down 290. And I was like, I mean, 280, 280. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was like, oh my gosh, I know exactly like where she is and what she's talking about. And there was so much like little Bay Area nuggets that I just personally appreciated in the book. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> it was it was a fun little, you know, it's always fun when you get to see where you're from in a book. My friend um, got and, so irritated at me the other day. She's like, how dare you make me hungry by mentioning the It's It factory? I'm like, sorry, That's girl. exactly right. <laughs> it's It. That's exactly right. I actually have a box of It's It's in my, in my freezer right now <sighs> for some like very random reason. I don't my husband just bought them during the week of the Super Bowl and we never got to them. So they're there, but they're not the mint ones, which they should be. Too I bad. Feel. <laughs> <laughs> OK, I want to know, like the thing that I was, I think, like the most really like blown away by was the generational trauma mm. and the way that you wrote about it and your family. Um, and I'm wondering, what do you think? more people should or could understand about generational trauma? Or what do you think people are getting wrong about generational trauma? Yeah, I think that, you know, it is a combination of nature and nurture, right? Mm. It's not just that our ancestors are passing on their teachings culturally, which they are, of course, but that mm -hmm. they are passing it on through our literal genes, and I think that there has been some evidence that trauma gets passed on through our genes and that like we remain fearful from generation to generation about certain things that we can be anxious. I mean, you know, Holocaust survivors genes have been changed to make them more hypervigilant and their ancestors or sorry, that they're well, what's the opposite of ancestors? The other way. <laughs> they're pro progeny? They're, they're progeny. <laughs> yeah, their kids and then their kids. Uh, tend to be more hypervigilant because you can see that gene marker changed. But right. it doesn't necessarily always make us weaker. I mean, mm -hmm. these are genetic adaptations designed in order to help us survive, 
right? It, it, we're literally evolving, trying to anyway. And so, you know, there is some evidence that, for example, in the Swedish town of Overkalix, if you were a boy that was starving around the age of 12, two generations later, your grandchildren might be more likely to survive and be healthier and less likely to have heart attacks, you know? Hmm. So yeah. our grandparents' suffering doesn't necessarily make us weaker. Right, right, right. It can make us more resilient in many ways. Yeah. I just, I guess I didn't quite understand how much of it is, can be genetic, like how much of it is passed down, whether it makes us stronger or weaker. Mm. Like you have this study about the mice and the cherry blossom scent in that same section of the book. And that was like a real, I had to take a pause from reading the book and like write down a bunch of notes because like the fact that it wasn't just the next generation, but the generation after that, like grandparents or whatever, that was really, I mean, that's like, that says a lot, you know, like that's like a major thing to understand about who we are and how we become who we are. And I think I always tell the story on the show, but I'm sure you're familiar. I, I'm black. And so I didn't know. I always thought that black people had a higher risk of heart disease and blood pressure. And it's true that they do in America, but it's not true that black people like in Africa and African nations, they don't. And mm. so that has to do with the experience of, you know, racism and and prejudice in America. Um, and I and I just that was the same kind of thing of like, oh, my gosh, a lot of the things we think that we understand about our bodies are passed down or we think are genetic aren't. And a lot of things that we think aren't genetic are because <laughs> of, you know, experience like experiences. And so that was helpful for me to read about that in, in your work. Yeah, I think just to comment on that real quick, there, there's this Chinese saying that I learned near the end of writing my book, which is a third of the world is under the control of heaven, a third is under the control of the environment, and a third is in your hands, which I think mm. is really helpful to understand about, especially when you have complex trauma, there can be a lot of shame, a lot of self-blame, and you just have to realize that you are a product of your community, of your environment, of your history, of your grandparents' history. There's so much that we do not have control over. Um, which can be sort of distressing at first, but you have to realize that it also like alleviates some of that self-blame and guilt. And you can only take control over what whatever agency you do have and make the best of what you do have. And the rest sort of let it go, <laughs> you know? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's the hard part, right? The like letting go part of like right. convincing yourself that you could do that. Um, I'm wondering if you thought about the work that you've done in complex PTSD and sort of the systemic ways that like, as we're talking about through our ancestors and through our families, that these, sometimes these things are passed down, whether positive or negative. And I wonder if you've thought about any of this, like more broadly in the systems that are in place, because you sort of talk about racism can cause PTSD. Mm -hmm. um, my guess is that like certain forms of sexism or homophobia can probably are, can also cause PTSD. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering if like there's ways to extrapolate what you've learned that can help to heal some of these bigger, more broad forms of trauma. Yeah. How do you heal communal trauma is kind of what yes. you're asking. Yeah. I think there's a lot of different things. I think awareness is the first key element. So, mm. you know, knowing about my history, knowing about complex PTSD, knowing about the effect that it had on my brain was what sort of allowed me to go on this journey and sort of when you're healing from complex PTSD, right, you have to realize, is the threat real or is the threat imagined? And mm. so I think 
part of grappling with that is thinking, okay, I feel triggered or upset right now because I have, you know, historical, personal experience with this. Why might I be triggered right now? And is that truly what's happening here? Right. Mm. So I think there are some personal ways that we can deal with it by educating ourselves. I think that tons of systems need to change. I think that, for example, the educational system could do a much better job of, you know, as you were talking about, these conflicts weren't that long ago. Jim Crow wasn't mm. that long ago. The Vietnam, the Korean Wars, the Chinese Cultural Revolution, these were not that long ago. And yet we really don't have that much of an understanding about how close this is, about how our this is what our parents and grandparents survived. Um, and this isn't just, you know, Korean history or whatever, African. This is American history. Right. Uh, America is why a lot of these conflicts happened. Um, yes. We yes. were personally invested. This is why we are here right now. Um, so just being able to understand that, having our educational system be able to teach that, I think is really key. I think our mental health care system is completely broken. It caters to only very privileged, narrow subset of our society, which I think is really messed up. So it should be accessible. Yeah. It should be less racist in that like the methodologies and the therapies that we have should be able to cater specifically to people of color and, and, and they don't. Um, they're not culturally responsive. So th that's part of it. I think we are seeing some aspects of a good shift with the pandemic, I think, in terms of sort of moving away from this pressure to be completely productive all the time and being able to bury trauma with productivity, with financial success, with academic success. And I think moving away from this horrible, highly stratified capitalistic environment that we have where we have yeah. to work constantly and don't have the time or resources to expend on our mental health and divorce our self-worth from our economic output, you know, that's, that's pretty key. <laughs> so right. if we can do something about that, that would be really helpful. <laughs> yeah. Please. Can we please? <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, just, I think it's really important to just talk more about trauma, to normalize trauma, to normalize sadness, and to learn how to take care and love each other better. Because mm. PTSD, complex PTSD is a relational trauma. It's about how we relate to each other and then how you sort of lack trust in other people because of that. I mean, you're saying, you know, you can develop complex PTSD um, from experiencing a lot of racism. Okay, well, I guess we need to fix racism then in order for yeah. people to actually feel safe. <laughs> so how do right. we learn to treat each other with kindness and respect? And I think that some aspect of that was true in Mott Haven, where you really have this mini society in which you're educating people how to treat each other, how to listen to each other, how to like resolve conflicts kindly and empathetically, and how to like love each other instead of just focusing entirely on rigorous academics. Yeah. If we had some form of that in our society, I think we would be a lot better off. Yeah. Just for people who haven't read the book yet, can you tell them about Mott Haven? That was a really special moment in the book. 
Yeah, I wrote about going to the school in the Bronx called Mott Haven, which has, I think, about a third of their student population are foster children. So these are children who have undergone a tremendous amount of trauma. And the rest of the population is generally underserved kids who are struggling with poverty. And so it's just overall a bunch of kids who've seen a lot of hard stuff. And so the focus of the school is not to get them the best grades, but to give them the most stable learning environment possible and to sort of give them a really safe, healthy, happy space where they can learn to be good people and who love each other um, if they don't have that at home. So a lot of it is learning how to resolve conflicts with friends, learning how to Mm -hmm. trust each other, not punishing kids, but instead, if they have fights with each other, teaching them how to work those fights out by the, with each other and to talk about their feelings. It was one of the most beautiful experiences I'd ever seen, Looking at watching these kids who'd suffered through so much but had so much emotional intelligence because of mm. the school that they went through. They were just so good at saying to each other, like, I forgive you or what's wrong or expressing their needs, you know. And I was mm. like, oh, my God, if only I had learned this in school. Right. Yeah. It was like a jarring reading experience, that part, because I was like, what is happening? Like, what is this alternate universe where children are being taught things that are actually relevant to their future life experience? I've never (laughs) heard of such a place. And like contrasting that against your experience going back to your high school and all of your teachers basically being like, no, the kids here are totally fine. They're just like sometimes have a hard time making their essays sparkle or whatever the phrase was like, just felt so different, you know? And like, I think that my experience and probably a lot of people's experiences are much closer to your experiences in high school, like that the teachers weren't necessarily plugged into what was going on with the kids. Um, Yeah. So that moment really stuck out to me. Do you feel like this book sort of changed from what you set out to write? Like, did you have a clear idea of what you wanted the book to be when you got started? And is that what I'm holding in my hands? Actually, yeah. Oh, awesome. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, I think after I had done the majority of my my healing and research, kind of right before uh, I started seeing Dr. Ham, but after I had everything else, I wrote an outline of the book um, and it was really based on, I well, I went through the collected schizophrenias mm. by Esmei Wei-Jun Wang, obviously. And then I just really kind of uh, mapped it out and I wanted it to be a mix of science and personal stories. I thought hers was pretty good. I think mine winds up being a little bit more personal, maybe. Um, but I knew that there were a bunch of different big ideas that I had mm. hit in my recovery that I found to be really important for me. And I kind of wanted to get all of those in there. I think the main thing that really changed actually from like my first draft and first sort of idea of what the book was going to be to now was I actually, my the, the first 50 pages of this book are about my childhood and a lot of the child abuse that I endured. Mm-hmm. And I think in my first draft of it um that part was really short it was like 10 pages long okay (laughs) because I think I had just read so many trauma books where you're Mm -hmm. immersed in the trauma for most of the book or the entire book Mm -hmm. um and it can be just really draining and painful 
And mm-hmm. that's not to say there isn't a place for that. That's there is, of course there is. But I just wanted to have mine be mostly about the journey of recovery as an adult, which I don't think you see as often. Right, right. Because I wanted to provide sort of like a roadmap for people who are about to go on that journey because, yeah, I I had no idea what that would look like. But then my editor was like, you can't write about a healing journey with nobody understanding what you're healing from. Right. Um, So I, I needed to flesh that out. And that was pretty tough. That's what editors are good for, letting you know that those kind of things, right? Like, you got to add a little more. Yeah. What was the hardest part of writing this book and what came easily? Well, one of the easiest parts that barely got edited out, actually, and just is kind of like in there almost exactly as it was in its first draft, was all of my sections with Dr. Hum, my therapist. Mm, yeah. Because that was almost kind of purely journalistic because I literally had all of our therapy sessions recorded. And so I went through them and read them and plucked out my favorite bits. And um, it was like creating a radio story or a piece of journalism. And also, I think going back into those sessions kind of feels like a warm hug. It was really, Mm. I I loved my therapy sessions. I love my therapist. So that was really fun. The hardest part was the beginning. So, you know, my childhood trauma. I think What was really difficult about it was that I probably wrote it like 30 times. It was ridiculous. (laughs) And so, yeah, I probably have written like whatever, 500 pages of me being abused. And it's ridiculous because each time I would put it in front of eyes and they would be like, we can't feel you at all. Because obviously I'm so dissociated. Sure, sure. Like that's the only way I can go back and access that is is by being dissociated. I, I don't even quite remember what it really felt like to be that girl put in these like horrific situations where my my parents were threatening to kill me or and sometimes sometimes actually jeopardizing my life. Right. Uh or, you know, my mom trying to kill herself and blaming it on me. And I think that the only way that I was finally able to sort of make it happen was to just get in front of it. And you've read mm-hmm. the book, you know, that at a certain point, I'm just like, you know what? I have no idea how this felt. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. fuck you for asking. <laughs> right. Exactly. That was my guess of what would have been the hardest part. But I mean, it makes total sense, right? That that would be the hardest part. Yeah. Is there anything that you wish was in the book that w- is not in the book? Um, there were a couple of really cool places that I visited, um, like Mott Haven that were doing really mm. awesome um, trauma, particularly with immigrant communities. Mm. And I wish that I would had that had made it in there, but I understand why it didn't. It would have been way too long. Um, so maybe in the second book. Okay. Oh, we'll get to that, I guess, <laughs> later. Thank you for that intro. Um, <laughs> I, I have to ask you about this. I know that mo- some authors don't have any relationship to this next question, so you can feel free to tell me that this wasn't part of your process. But the cover of your book is mm. so incredibly gorgeous. And I just want to know if you what the process was like, if you were a part of it at all. Um, and if not, we can not talk about it. No, oh, I was <laughs> a very big part of it. Yeah. Okay. It's just so gorgeous. It seems like you it couldn't exist without the influence of the author, but please tell us about it. Yeah. So I think that there was initially kind of a struggle. I think people didn't know what what to put on the cover. 
And I think some early, I mean, really, I, I for the longest time, I didn't get any because my editor kept being like, no, the ones they're sending me are not good. And then eventually <laughs> I, I got to look at them and I understood what she was talking about. There was just like a lot of hands, a lot of tigers, like so many tigers. And, and, and I was just like, no, what tigers have nothing to do with this book. I don't get it. And then um, some kind of ones that were like chopsticks and stuff. And oh, I was like, oh, man. okay. Let's not do that. Um, and it just wasn't coming together. And my best friend who I write about in the book, Kath Catherine Wang, okay. um, <laughs> she's been my best friend since the fourth grade. I was complaining about this to her. And she's an art director, which like I never thought to use her for anything, but she was like, I'm going to art direct your book. And so we sat down together. She brought a ton of ideas to the table and a ton of book covers. And she asked me, do you like this? Do you like this? Do you like this? Um, we made these mood boards. And she really thought about like, okay, if we were to use the image of bones, what would you want alongside them? Because I know you don't want anything to be spooky or look like it's going right. to be a mystery thing or like a death thing. And I was like, yeah, I think if there were bones, the only way to make it feel like there's a lot of life and hope to it is just to put lush 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 flowers and plants just mm. to make life springing from these bones and a lot of plants that are like really important to me in terms of on the cover actually there's you know there's rambutans and there's mangoes and um there's wood sorrel from california so i made i kind of mocked up a couple of covers that looked quite a bit like this and then they gave it to a real professional and and made this made it look like classy well it's incredibly gorgeous and I I mean so far it is my favorite cover I've seen this year of books that are out or books that are coming I just it's wow. like, like breathtaking I think it's so beautiful like I it's I mean I just love it I love it wow, so much wow, wow that's so nice of you to say oh and I can't wait so to true Kathy please do please do tell her thank you for creating it with you because it's just it's really I mean like it gives me it makes me feel things so I just I love it um we'll take and a the quick designer is Grace Hahn oh okay amazing um we'll take a quick break and then we'll be right back taking care of your health isn't always easy but it should be at least simple that's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. 
If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1. And that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, we're back. Before we dive into sort of a little bit more about your process and how you work, I do I want to make sure that I ask you about this because this came up in the book. Um, I believe it was C. Pam Zhang whose whose essay you mentioned about writing about her experiences and and some trauma there. And you sort of get to this a little bit in the book about, you know, the experience of being of Asian immigrant families and talking about trauma and how that's sort of taboo. And I'm wondering, you know, like for you, how you were able to work through some of that stuff or or was it something that you sort of were able to work through in your therapy and so you didn't feel the stress or the pressure about talking about it publicly? Yeah, I think that I've always been sort of the black sheep of my family and I've always been the one who's who's been yelling and speaking the unspeakable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think part of my comfortable this doing this is is just kind of that I've always been doing it and I've always mm-hmm. been kind of outcast for it anyway and so like I'm like well how much worse could it be at this point sure I don't have relationships with either of my parents right. so I didn't have to worry too much about their response my family back home in Malaysia they've only just sort of recently been validating what I went through. I I did a story for This American Life a few years ago about my family in Malaysia. And uh, I really worried that that was going to cause a lot of drama or anger with them, but not, uh, not really. They, they really supported me. They started saying for the first time after that, and now the book is coming out that they really believe me for the first time, because they sort of denied the abuse that was happening to me for decades or minimized it or made me feel like it was my fault. Mm -hmm. Um, And now that it's like on fancy radio shows or in books, they're like, oh, maybe it's it's real, which is a little frustrating. Right. (laughs) Right. Because like I I don't really need you to validate this now, quite honestly. I think the person who needed it most was the 10-year-old me who was being severely abused 
they could she could have used your help but that's okay we all come around right. to things a little <laughs> late sometimes i guess right right is there any like i know for me sometimes when i talk about things on this show that are like black specific that i'm sometimes i get nervous like of how people who aren't black will receive or understand it. Did you have any worry about that? Like about your readers who don't have similar life experience to you not understanding what you were saying or like extrapolating the wrong stuff? Was that anything that you had to work through? Yeah, I did worry about that. I worried about there being uncomfortable stereotypes. Yeah. I I felt like I ran it by a lot of Asian Americans actually, Mm -hmm. um, including kids from my high school. Um, Mm -hmm before I sent it to print and them saying like, this is true. This was our experience was really helpful. Cause I was like, well, what can I do? This is my personal experience. This was our experience that deserves a voice and how you choose to interpret it. You know, that's up to you. If you want to see a different voice, give another Asian American author the opportunity to write it, you know, that's right. But this is mine and I'm, not responsible for how whether you choose to believe it's it's valid or not (laughs) um Mm. but also i think it is countering a very specific stereotype of the model minority i think the stereotype was of that asian kids are do really well academically we're really ambitious and so how could we be suffering from mental illness or generational trauma like we figured out a way to to erase the conflicts that brought us to this country in the first place. And I'm like, wait a minute. No, <laughs> that right. can, that's not right. I mean, people can have both of those narratives in their head if they want. And I, I encourage them to grapple with that. Right. It's so interesting. You said that we're reading Toni Morrison this month for the book club. And one of the things I love about what Toni Morrison does is that she oftentimes presents, you know, a thing that we think we understand, like a stereotype, if you will. And then she complicates it a lot by being like, okay, but this is also part of that thing. Mm -hmm. Or this is also like, you can have the model minority, but you can't have it without the fact that so many, you know, parents of children who now are excelling in school went through horrible experiences at refugee camps. Or, you know, like you can't just have it as is. You have to take it with the truth of the thing. And I think your book does that beautifully of like talking about both the stereotypes that we understand and also how those stereotypes come to be, you know, and like how there's a a lot more complicated interpersonal experiences that lead to a child feeling like they need to get all A's, right? Or a parent feeling like they need their child to get all A's, even if you know, the outcome that you see is that it doesn't necessarily mean that that's what is happening underneath. And I think you really do a good job of complicating. And also that like, there are plenty of Asian kids who don't get all A's and that's there too. You know, like I just, I just think you brought up so much richness in a community that's so often flattened. Um, So I really appreciated that in your book. Thanks. Um, Okay. Yeah. We're going to do sort of a hard turn to your writing experience, um, which is, How did you know you wanted to write? I've been writing my whole life. Interestingly enough, I was sort of forced to write. Um, Mm. I started writing when I was five or six because my mom forced me to write journals. 
sometimes multiple times a week of my experiences. And they had to be long and very interesting and well-written and couldn't have spelling mistakes or grammar mistakes or I would get beaten for it. Right. Which is really interesting that what started as something that I was forced to do and, and abused because of turned out somehow to be my salvation and the thing that allowed me to crawl out of that trauma you know, Kat Chow pointed out this quote in my book recently, um, which was something my grandma always used to tell me, when the sky falls, use it as a blanket. Mm. And I feel like the book is the blanket. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think in my teens, uh, my early preteens and my teens, I started journaling a lot and I, I have pretty comprehensive journals that whole time of like I was very very alone at that time I had no one to talk to my parents couldn't understand I have no siblings no family in the United States no friends and so this was my confession booth this was how I got my ideas out and it, it's a safe place for me as an adult it's kind of where I talk myself up I like put mm. down all of my fears about myself and then counter them with arguments about why I'm wrong <laughs> <laughs> It's evolved a lot throughout my lifetime, the act of writing. Having it be something that you've been doing your whole life, how does it change when you do it professionally versus when you do it, you know, to talk yourself up? Like, how do you navigate? It's the same, you know, act of writing, but I'm sure you approach it in really different ways. Yeah, I think it's different when I have an audience, of course. Um, I think a lot about plot and what would be interesting to people mm -hmm. and how to like build suspense. I think when I write for myself, it's mostly like feelings. And when mm -hmm. I write for an audience, it's mostly scenes actually, mm -hmm. because I'm a, I'm a, I was a radio journalist for over 10 years. And when you write a radio script, it's kind of like a film script mm. in which you have to have like sort of scene idea, scene idea. And that's how you build the drama and you create an image of things in people's heads. And so I think a lot of putting this book together was thinking of the best scenes of my life, I think, mm. and, and what would be most compelling, which would illustrate the ideas that I wanted to get across best. Yeah. And it's kind of reflex for me too, at this point. Yeah, I think most of the book in terms of the therapy and stuff, it was pretty easy to come up with those scenes and do that. I think that the only, the part that was hardest was like, obviously the child abuse stuff. I was like, which, which incidents of my child abuse would be more, most entertaining right. for the, for the reader. <laughs> like, right. it's such which a which up of thing. my nightmares is the most compelling to yeah. share with strangers. I get that. That seems absolutely terrifying. Yeah. Um, you sort of answered my question about, I had a question for you about sort of, you know, the difference or the similarities between writing a book and working in, you know, audio productions. And, and I think it's interesting that you kind of approach both by like by a, with a scene intention. Um, I actually really like that. I love a scene. <laughs> yeah. Um, how do you make time to write? Where do you write? How often um, do you listen to music? Do you have snacks and beverages? Are you in an office? Are you on a couch? Like, can you sort of set the scene for your writing? Well, I mean, I think a lot of my writing, like the journaling that I went through when I was healing took place in cafes. Um, okay. Particularly, there was 
you know, there was one cafe milk and pull in bed that I spent a lot of time like crying in and <laughs> to the point where they would like give me free scones a lot. <laughs> um, but m- almost this entire book. Yeah, I think the whole book is really written in the pandemic. Wow. So it, I got my book deal in February 2020. January oh, my goodness. 2020. Yeah. It was mostly written either in my office if my husband wasn't working in it or if my husband was working in it, I would work on the kitchen table Okay, <laughs> in this very cramped, messy apartment that we had that was totally falling apart. Um, <laughs> holes in the walls everywhere. It was like a, it was an utter mess. Oh, no. <laughs> it was OK. <laughs> we moved in in February 2020. We actually moved in above my uh, in-laws because oh, okay. Joey's mom was sick and we had moved in to take care of her. So also there's a lot of, you know, checking in on her and caretaking and then going back mm. up and reading, writing this book. It was pretty complicated. Do you have any go-to snacks or beverages? Do you oh. listen to music? Any rituals around your writing? Right. Um, I don't really listen to music. I really like it quiet, but I'll listen to Laskill. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, okay. Which is just ambient noise music. Okay. Um, if if my husband was doing construction on our house, which was happening a lot. <laughs> um, and uh, um, a lot of Diet Coke. Oh, yes. A woman after my own heart. <laughs> a lot of Diet Coke. And I think during the pandemic, I was cooking a lot and I was feeling really good about it. Um, my go-to breakfast would be like maybe breakfast tacos okay. with either eggs on nori or sorry, eggs on rice with mm-hmm. nori and sesame oil or breakfast tacos with potatoes and mushrooms and eggs and like crema and uh, on top and salsa or um, let's see, I made a lot of Chinese food that I had never had to try to make before mm. by hand, but like nothing was available and we couldn't eat any out anywhere, you know? Right, right. Of course. Um, lots of, a lot of Chinese snacks too. Like um, I really like Lay's potato chips with Asian flavors, like mm. nori or my favorite is um, the spicy crawfish. I've never had that. It's really good. Oh my God. Okay. You've opened up my eyes. I love a snack, which is why it's a very important part of this podcast is to make sure everyone gets on record talking about what they're eating. You've passed the test. You've given me quite a bunch of things. A lot of people try to be like, oh, I like celery. And I'm like, no, that's not going to cut it around here. This was like my one, my sole joy in the pandemic was eating. So yeah. It's honestly same. I, eating and cooking. I loved, I, I mean, I still am cooking so much more than I used to because I just love it. And I've always loved it. But having to go back to it now, I'm like, oh, planning out my meals, going to the farmer's market, like getting things to make and try. Yeah, so, same. You mentioned that when you were a kid, you had to write and you had to spell everything correctly. But another really important question that we ask around here is what's a word you can never spell correctly on the first try? Or are you still a great speller? I'm not that good a speller. There's a, okay. a lot of words that have like a, a lot of doubles next to each other, like bookkeeper mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, oh, yeah. Confuse me. It's horrible. The first, the only word that's coming to mind is like diarrhea. 
<laughs> I don't really know where the H goes a lot of the time. Uh, that's a um, great word. And I also have no <laughs> clue how to spell it. I could probably sit here for 10 <laughs> minutes and give you 19 different spellings and none of them would be right. Oh my gosh. I love that. That's the, you've, you win best word so far ever on the show. <laughs> We've been doing the show for a long time. This question got invented in fall 2019 and you're definitely the winner right now yay with diarrhea <laughs> awesome diarrhea. good luck everyone else try to top that <laughs> um I I guess like writing this in a pandemic and 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 all that was going on around you with your with your mother-in-law and the apartment and everything like how do you preserve and tap into your creativity how do you hold on to that part of yourself hmm. I think people are kind of like how are you creative? Um, and I think like working on deadline, right? Mm. For mm -hmm. t 10 mm -hmm. years where I just had to be, cre like I had to make this story in two days or five days or whatever it is. And you just have to, <laughs> there's no, so you sit down and you write it. And if it's crap, then you, whatever, it's there. And then you go back and you look at it again and you revise it and you keep revising it. I mean, I don't think that I have some secret muse that I tap into. I think that my only real tip actually is knowing my sort of circadian clock well. I know mm. that I'm kind of useless from until like 11. And so I would mostly just do like boring tasks or whatever, answering emails until like noon. And then I would be really productive from like noon to six-ish. Mm. And I love that. Yeah. I love that. You think that the deadline thing isn't a thing, but that's actually like a really interesting thing that comes up from different authors, depending on their experiences, additional experiences. Like some people say like the deadlines are the thing that, that make them creative, you know, like that they are able to work that way. And then some people say like the deadlines just totally destroy their lives. So it's, it's interesting to hear you talk about that too. You alluded to this earlier, no pressure, but is there a second book? Do you know what comes next? Can you tell us anything? Well, okay. I haven't done any work on this really. Um, okay. Except That's fair. Your book just came out like two weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> but based on like some of the extra research that I have for my old book, I would like to do a new book entitled The Case Against Therapy. Mm. Um, basically, The Case Against Psychotherapy, Talk Therapy as we know it. Which is not to say that it isn't helpful for people. I mean, you saw that it was very helpful for me. But yeah. I think there are just a bunch of different therapies, particularly culturally sensitive therapies, that mm. we have not explored um, as much that are really fascinating and tremendously helpful for people. Like, for example, my Google Docs, my talk therapy even had Google Docs therapy, and that was not traditional right. in any kind of sense. Right. But it was super helpful for me. Um. And for listeners, that's where like me, I transcribed all of my therapy sessions into Google Docs and edited my trauma out with my therapist. And uh, just exploring how untraditional therapies have had really huge impacts on different communities, I think is something I really want to do. Yeah, that sounds incredible. We all can't wait. No pressure. Take your time whenever you're ready. Uh, <laughs> for people who loved this book, What My Bones Know, what would you recommend to them to read? What other books do you think are maybe in conversation or good companion pieces for them? 
Um, the collected schizophrenias, obviously. Um, mm -hmm. If you want to read really great um, therapy sessions, more great recollections of what happens in the therapist's office, maybe you should talk to someone, mm. obviously, by Lori Gottlieb. I Seeing Ghosts by Kat Chow. Um, mm. You know, we were writing our books in tandem, so... I, I have to mention that um, it's also it also deals with grief and to some extent intergenerational trauma. I think if you've just gotten diagnosed with complex PTSD, a really helpful, like very gentle, kind explanatory first step is Journey Through Trauma by Gretchen Schmelzer. Love that book. I think if you're really going through a hard time, Pema Chodron is obviously a great solve and I think in terms of moving away from this obsession with capitalist productivity and being able to feel your feelings more, How to Do Nothing, so one of my favorite books. And I'm just going to say Braiding Sweetgrass because it's my favorite book and I don't care okay. if it's in conversation with this because everyone should just read it. So there. Great. <laughs> You're allowed to. That question is really for you to do whatever you want with. Um, I love it. We love a book recommendation around here. So thank you for those. That was really good, too. You, That was like professional. Uh, really well done. So this is sort of, I guess, my second to last question, which is just what do you hope folks will keep in mind as they read What My Bones Know? Hmm. In the beginning, I have a uh, the first page is a trigger warning, essentially. Mm -hmm. And I know that reading this stuff, particularly the, particularly the child abuse stuff, can be really difficult. And so I kind of just wanted to underline that like part one of this book, particularly like the first 50 pages, are the hardest pages. And if you need to skip over any explanations of abuse in this book, like feel free. You're not mm -hmm. going to miss anything. Just kind of like speed read it or skip over a couple pages, you'll be okay. <laughs> if yeah. it's really triggering for you, I am there with you. I get it. And just know that like maybe the first hundred pages is like the darkest, but then it, mm -hmm. I, I really tried to be more hopeful and I'm just kind of affirming experiences kind of over and over and over in the book um, because I just wanted the reader to be there with me and okay and just like I, I try to hold your hand as much as possible like with a kind loose grip <laughs> yeah. so um just keep that in mind when you're going through the hard stuff that like it's gonna get softer and warmer real soon that's very good advice for folks last question if you could have one person dead or alive read this book who would you want it to be Who's the person with the most power to change our mental health system? <laughs> wow, that would be great to know. Then we could just call that one person and then have, stop having to deal with our senators or whatever the fuck. Uh, uh, <laughs> Biden? I don't know. <laughs> sure, sure. I don't know if he's the person, but I, I, I don't know. <laughs> maybe. Some, someone important enough to fix things so we yeah. can all get therapy and be taken care of. And, exactly. Or not get therapy, depending on what your next book says. No, we, we sh various <laughs> forms. We should get the... Therapy that's tailored to us is what we yeah, should get. Yeah, the therapy we need. Yeah. Well, 
Stephanie, this has been so great. Thank you so much for coming on. Everyone at home, you can get Stephanie's book, What My Bones Know, now wherever you get your books from your favorite indie, from your library. You can get it from Libro FM. You can get it everywhere. Stephanie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a fun interview. I really liked the snack part. Okay. <laughs> the thank you. I, and I didn't even pay you to say that. <laughs> Everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. That does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to Stephanie for being my guest. I'd also like to thank Courtney Mocklow and Morgan Hoyt for helping to make this interview possible. Remember, the Stacks Book Club pick for March is A Mercy by Toni Morrison. And we will be discussing the book on Wednesday, March 30th with Imani Perry. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the Stacks Pack. Make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Our editor is Christian Duenas. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite. And our theme music is from Tagiragis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. Mm-hmm.